0: That is coming, and waited for uh, the day when God would be Emmanuel with us. God, we wait for the return of our King. We wait for You to send Your Son to to set things to right. And the way the kingdoms rage and they plot and, and and they produce so much unrighteousness and so much war and so much oppression, Father, we ask that You would even while we wait for our Savior, be making us to be kingdom, that that little baby came to inaugurate, that we would be learning to love like him and that we would be learning to serve like him and learning to set the world the way heaven would have it be. And and above those things, Father, I ask that even as we learn to gather together, as we learn to be a congregation, even in Olds Camp 101, Father, I ask that you would teach us how to love each other like we're in. Thank you so much for what you're doing what, yeah, the, the lives you're changing, the freedom you're bringing, the, the repentance that you are putting in the hearts of men and women, father we yes, ask you would grow it, and that all the more we would be becoming the people who bring well-being and love and joy all about to our world, even as, even as your son being born brought joy to the world almost years ago. Thank you. Amen. All right, you may be seated? Um, Children, you guys may go to Children's Church. Would you head to that door? Uh, Middle schoolers, it is Middle School Sunday. So you guys head that way over there. And uh, whoa, Um, we had uh, everything rolling good. It was great. And then about five minutes before everything started, our slide program decided that it hated life. And uh, they quit on us. And so today, I have to go old-fashioned and read like this. So if you, uh, if you will be so graceful as to let me turn my back to you, don't you turn your back on me like that ass yeah, up. Um, but just a quick uh, a round of applause for all these men back here and, and women who put all this work into our tech happening, Mike and Ricky and all you guys. <laughs> And and Wes, who came from Kentucky, probably ruined it. There you go, Wes. There you go. He's he's raising his hand, getting acknowledgement from you people, deserving none of it, none of it. All right. Um, well, Merry Christmas time to you. The advent of the King, as we. It's just too good. Jesus' birthday is too good for just a day, and so we, uh, the church, throughout the centuries, we we've thought of it as a thing which is coming. And not only because we, uh, long ago, people waited for the coming of Messiah, but even we wait for the coming of the King. And so it's called Advent, and it's it's four Sundays, and this is the first Sunday. Um, But as it is December 1st, we also have to celebrate um, the birth of Rob Seifert, our our worship leader. Today's his birthday. He's, He's there. He's 42. He's getting there. So i I keep waiting for him to catch up to me, but every time, like, and then I have another birthday, and he never does catch up. I'm well, old. So, thanks, Amy. Amy thinks I'm hilarious. The rest of you are like, will he stop? Uh, hey, there's um. There's a couple ways a teacher could handle um, their classroom. Ways we set rules. There might be something like, for example. Um, If I were still, I I used to teach Bible over at the Christian school there, and I can imagine that it would have been like me, that I would have made a rule that if you wear black and yellow to my class tomorrow, I'll kick you out. It's okay. I don't care if you're a Steelers fan. I just can't do it. I've got my Steelers fan mocking me right over here. But, uh... This would be what we call an arbitrary rule. Arbitrary rules work in games as well. I bet, um, here, a real quick show of hands. How many of you, when you play the game Monopoly and you get to, um, to free parking, there's a pot in the middle where you get money? You guys do that? You guys do the free parking? Yeah, you, you know it's against the rules, you rule riggers. It's supposed to be just free parking. How dare you change rules? But it's an arbitrary rule. And as long as we all agree to it, it's fine, right? But then there's the sort of rules that are not arbitrary, that cannot be broken. So for example, if I were the teacher in the class and I were to say something like, if you have um, uh, the flu, you're not allowed to kiss anybody else in my class. It's not arbitrary. I'm really deeply concerned about the cause and effects that may work. Uh, if, If you were to say, well, I just consider gravity to be an arbitrary rule, it will never change, it will there are, there are arbitrary rules and there are necessary rules. Necessary rules are important, not just in the class, in games or whatever. Because, you know, a game, you just sort of made it up. But in life, if we try to act like God made rules in an arbitrary sense, it does great damage to us. Because that's where I'm going with this. Quite often, we think that God's like, well, let's see here. I'll make it arbitrary. You can't uh, lie. And, and we act like our, our sin is just sort of this, well, it's probably fine, but it's going to make God mad. I don't want to make God mad. And so I probably ought not, as opposed to when we break God's law, we're not just breaking things. He didn't arbitrarily set things up. He actually explained to us how life works. And when God tells us how things work, if we begin to act as though it's arbitrary or foolish, we're not just hurting ourselves, we're hurting others. And as we move on into James. So we've got our verse that we've been working for. This is the Count It All Joy series because that's what James began it. He said that there's a a way to think of life, not to be joyful when you uh, encounter trials of many kinds, but rather consider joy. Use your ability to make an accounting measure, and when you account things, say, I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, but I'm going to take joy because I know as I learn to handle trials well. Something great can happen. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, right? When, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why would you want to be that sort? We've talked about it a lot as we've gone along. But there's the dream that we would actually be the sort who, and hear me out on this, quit hurting each other. Right. And not only just be that sort who quit hurting each other, but who also make real well-being go out into our world because of how we choose to live life. Now, most of us think that it will be sufficient if all we do is is we just act nice and we and we see things like, you know, just if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. This kind of a if you if you have a crappy heart toward people, pretend you don't. The pretending should be fine, right? But it doesn't work that way, right? Because we've talked about this as we've gone along, but out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are what we are choosing to make, how we grow. We are, we are like trees. Whatever you're planting, whatever you're nurturing in yourself is what you are becoming. My friend Michael Brown loves to say that you will never wake up tomorrow becoming a person that you were never practicing being today. We have these dreams of becoming the sort who make the world well. But unless we're willing to be accountants of our world, unless we're willing to really look at it and think, how do I handle these broken places and I'm learning how to do it. I was sharing this with a group the other day, but I I have a friend up in Michigan who's a pastor and we got together a couple days ago and we're hanging out. And his son was the quarterback on his high school football team up in their town. And he was telling me that there was this odd parallel with he and his son because his son is practicing all week on the field so that he can be who he who he wants to be on on Friday night right but he said in exactly the same way that i've been practicing who i was going to be i found out on friday night who i was practicing as a christian because when my son got hit late it wasn't no longer just oh there should be a penalty on play that's my kid who just got hit and i wanted to go out uh, to the field and grab the ref who didn't throw the flag and he actually told me that one night he waited outside, outside for the refs so that he could have a word. He said, I was kind. I, I, I said the right things, but I was ashamed about it later because <laughs> it's a true story. But on, and, and in the same way, when some guy, you know, a couple rows back, is like, get Rose out of there. He's the worst. Well, he's, That's my son. I want to get right. And he told exactly the same way, however, I was practicing being. If I didn't practice counting a joy whenever I went through trials, how was I going to handle it when someone was mocking my son on a Friday night at a football game? I don't know what your tests are. I don't know what your game time is. But I know for many of us, you know, we just went through Thanksgiving. Sometimes families are amazing. Sometimes they're game time. Sometimes they're trials of many kinds. You know what I'm saying? And we've got Christmas coming. You've got work. You've got places. I don't know what your game time is, but the goal of all this is If we account correctly, we learn to be the sort who plays the game in a way that creates the kingdom around us. That's been the goal all along. Well, as we begin to close out the series, today we're going to wrap up the book of James. This dumb little cough will not let go. I feel great. Dumb cough about every half hour I need it. Ah, it's killing me. Anyway. We go from here and, and, we, and we step into the rest of James. Now, last week we were talking about how we speak to each other and judge one another, and he's going to turn his eyes out. Remember, the Christian earliest Christians in James's writing as a Jewish leader to a Jewish community of Christians saw themselves as actually being Israel and participating in Israel the way it would have always should have gone. In other words, if you think back to, let's say, the days of Elijah. Elijah is, is the right way, right? And the rest of the Israelites are going the wrong way. And, he, and he's, Elijah's like, come on, let's go the right way to God. And, and those who rebelled and, and fell off in idol worship, they eventually went into captivity and kind of disappeared to the ages. That's why in the Old Testament we call them Israelites, because there's the 12 tribes. But by the time we get to, to the New Testament, they're called Jews because it's just the tribe of Judah. And they, and they, they felt that. Very succinctly, like, we're the people who tried to follow on God's path, and the rest of our brother Israelites, they disappeared to the world. And now the Christians are feeling the same sort of Elijah feeling, like, God has been amongst us, crucified, resurrected. This is the way God's having us go, and most of Israel's going off the other way. And James is going to begin to address the broader uh, Jewish congregation and how they see things, and it's important. Because the year is somewhere around 50 A.D., and we're only 20 years from the fall of Jerusalem. And you have got Jewish people who are getting rich on being in league with Rome and selling out their Jewish brothers. You've got people who are in oppression, and, and the, the land of Israel is starting to fall apart. There were actually hit squads, history tells us. You know, you read about the Pharisees and Sadducees in the Bible, they seem like they're in league with each other because how much they opposed Jesus, but they actually couldn't stand each other. And they started ho- ordering out hit squads think American politics are bad, wait till there's hit squads, okay? Let's not. Let's not go that route. So here we are. He says, come you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and and, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We'll live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's a sin. And even as he's, he's talking to people who think they have their life in their own hands, there's, of course, lessons for us to be learned because we make plans. I mean, we've got day planners and I got my calendar and then I could look in it and figure out what I'm supposed to be doing this week. So it's not like, oh, you should never plan for the future. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you think your well-being is in your hands, that if you've decided, I don't need God, I don't need, I can just go ahead and use other people and make my own well-being. What are you doing? What if instead you saw your days as belonging to God? What if you joined his kingdom and said, they're his? Some Christians actually practice this. They really do try to say, if the Lord wills it, and, uh, and they try to have that sense that whatever he wants is what's actually going to happen. And as we do it, as we, whether you actually say it with your words or not, as your heart does it and says, well, this is the plans I'm making, but ultimately I'm more excited, most excited to find out what God's going to do with it. And here's where it becomes trouble because remember I said these are necessary rules? This isn't James just being like, why aren't you spiritual enough? You should be wearing brown and orange because that's the good color. All right, what he's saying is, do you not get it? As you place your well-being in your hands, do you not understand that all the weight is on you, and you have to make your own well-being, and you think it'll be, make you safe, but all it does is keep you awake at night wondering, can you do it? And anxiety begins to flow in. Do you know in the poorest places on earth, anxiety is almost unheard of? It's because so little control is offered to them, they don't even think about it anymore. They just put hope in God. But it's us rich people, and by the way, all of us, when we're here in the West, if you're here today, you're just amongst the rich of this world, and we are. We who think that we can place our own well-being in our hands, because I've got a car, I've got a house, I've got my kids, I've got my stuff, I got, I've got a freezer full of food, I'm good. But as soon as my heart says, so therefore, God, I've got it, it's on me. And I begin to not only have anxiety, it begins to weigh on me. I begin to be willing to use you, because once fear is in place, I forget to love you. And once fear begins to rise, I begin to use you. And so he goes on and says this, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you.'" Whoa. "'Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten.'" The rich usually don't think of themselves as having the ratty clothes. That's usually for the poor. But he's saying something. Your gold and your silver have corroded. And here's where he tips his hand because that's the reason gold became the standard of wealth. Because it's the metal that doesn't corrode, right? It doesn't rust. But he's saying it is. It's rusting. It's corroding. And, and the corrosion will be evidence against you will eat your flesh like fire james is so dramatic you have laid up treasure in the last days you see he actually can see it in his world we might not really be as present with it as he was but he could see it in his world the rich of his day almost universally got that way by using others and here we are we have been granted so much resource The the opportunities that you and I have in our world to bless others and to build others out is really important. And how you use that resource, you will be called into account. How could we not? And it's not even just are you using your resource to bless people, but even how did you get it? When you think about your investments, when you think about how did you send your money out and how did it come back... Have you considered whether or not others had to toil, others had to be enslaved, are there place? And it's so difficult because we live in a world where we're so insulated from it, but they weren't. You know, this clothing I'm wearing, I honestly don't know who went through what to make it. And so as Christians, maybe the questions aren't so direct, like, oh, you know, are you wearing something that went through a sweatshop somewhere in Indonesia or something like that, but... Although those questions are important, but how do we even use the, the uh, influence that God has granted us as a nation to attempt to remedy those things in the world? We've been granted riches. Are we using oppression to stay that way? It's a big deal. But then he's going to turn to his people and he says, behold the wages the laborers who have mowed your fields, which have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, but he does not resist you. You see, the church is supposed to be the people who are the righteous people, and in this day and age, the church had really become the people who were being slaughtered because those first Christians, they just sold their stuff. They, they all kind of held it in common, and the very first churches lived as sort of communes, if you will, Uh, not communists, communists believe the government should have all of it, communes share their stuff together, and they were looking to give and to give and to give and to use their resource to bless, but they were often being broken by the rich. Now here we are sitting here 20 centuries later, and we just have to be careful as the church that we think oh so very carefully about this resource given to us, because he did give it to us. And it's, and it's placed, if it's in your hands, and you're one of the people who's a follower of Christ, and I want to say this, by the way, because when we gather together, I, I know a lot of you, and I'm excited, and I know some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and others, you're, you're working it all out, and some, you're just searching it out. And wherever you are today, I, I, I need to say this, wherever you are today, we don't like to do the thing where we're like, how dare you not agree with us, you know, and we don't need to. We really care that you be where you are. We really care that no matter where you sit in your faith, that you feel loved and cared about today. And as we talk about this way of well-being, this way of fixing the earth, we don't want to act like, well, we're the ones who have it down, and if you don't agree, well, then you're probably the people who are about to be, what does it say, slaughtered. (laughs) Sometimes Christians can behave like God's on our side and ready to destroy the others, and we really want to make sure that you hear how much God loves you and that we don't think of ourselves as peculiarly, Like God likes us and and, and hates the others. But rather, because God loves us, he's making us his. And so we want you to be able to seek out God. So when James gets dramatic like this, I sometimes feel like I want to get on your side and be like, yeah, James, why are you being so mean to my friend over here? I have that that feeling in my heart. Because I don't, on one hand, I don't want to let you lead you on and pretend that we can continue to invest in ourselves and indulge in ourselves and have well souls. And I don't want to ever pretend that we can live a life of self-centeredness and somehow bring well-being to the world. They are antithetical, and one will always cast out the other. So as we go forward and look at what James says, I really want us to say that we want to be these people here, where he can encourage us to be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Look, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? And they're similar to here. You know, we get the dry summer. The early rains allowed you to soften up the field and you could sow them. Then you get the dry summer and then you get the late rains and it grows the crops. Unless it was this year and then the poor corn was only this high and it was all sad. For my farmer friends, Lord, please give us a good year next year. But uh, you all, not just for our farmer friends, but those of us who want to eat as well. All right. You also be patient, he says. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not, well, I'll stop here, the, the, the do not grumble. Look what he says here. And he says he's tying it up. He's really just giving all these ways that the Christian people, the people who say, how does our way of life work? He's saying the Christian people, the ones who've learned to account at all joy whenever they encounter trials of many kinds, they're actually waiting for God to produce something. And it might not always come right away. And maybe you're in that spot in your life where you feel like it's the dry summer. I know it's, it's the cold winter out there and it's all rainy and everything, but maybe in your life it feels like the dry summer. You've planted things with the Lord and you feel like they're supposed to come, but it just feels like it's in the waiting and it's in the waiting and it's in the waiting. And why am I still here, Lord? When, when will I be out? And James says, I know it's hard and I know it's long and I know the sun scorches, And still wait. The people of Israel waited for centuries for Messiah. And God says, we too, we can wait. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, one of the beauties of Advent is we get to celebrate that those who waited got to see the kingdom inaugurate. Got to see, what is it, you know, the seven pound baby Jesus or whatever. Uh, They got to see the beginning of it. And they saw God walk amongst us. And now we wait for the kingdom to become fully realized. Even as we participate in and, and try to be the people who act like heaven toward one another, love one another, and care about one another, and give to one another, and whatever one, one another needs, we want to be those people. But as we wait, there's still a waiting that his kingdom is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What is it with complaining that our hearts really think it's going to work? We do it. We all try it. You know, when our, when, our kids, when our kids grumble, what does every single one of us want to do? The opposite, right? I want to, oh, right? As soon as it turns to whining, oh, I don't want to. Mm. I was probably willing to say yes a moment ago. You turned it to grumbling and whining. Go to your room. That's, that's a, all right. Of course it gets worse because when I'm the grumbler, when I'm the complainer, and when I'm the cynic thinking that my cynicism is going to protect my heart, it's going to if I complain about things, I can somehow put my negative energy out there, and it just breaks everything. And the worst part, it, or at least for me, it leaves me empty and broken. This way cannot work. The people of grace who put every complaint, now we we handle our complaints. We say, "Hey, we need to talk about a thing, but not by grumbling." We handle our problems by approaching one another in love and caring. It's not that we just sort of take it all on the chin and and pretend it doesn't happen. But we handle it with patience and kindness. Keep going. Here we go. Uh, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They knew about these prophets of old, who you know, guys like Elijah, who had to live by the riverside, being fed by birds for a while. They they would be able to evoke these images in their head. And behold, we consider those uh, those blessed who remain steadfast. Remember, in their ancient story, there were the times of the prophets were trying to lead God's people, and most of them were going astray. And you know, this Jewish mind, I want to be on God's side this time. When you when you hear those Old Testament stories, and some of you are. You know, you were raised, you got a lot of Old Testament in there, others, you may not know these things. But when, when we would hear those stories, we would often in our hearts think like, mm, if I'd have been back in that day, I'd have been on God's side. And if I'd been back in Elijah's day, the day that Elijah stood down the priest of Baal and everyone else was cheering for Baal until, until fire falls on God's altar and they're like, oh, snap, you know. I like to dream that I would have been one of the five people on the side going, go, God, go, God, go. Right, you know, that's, that's <laughs> Okay. So many Browns jokes available here, but we're going to keep it going because they always lose, right? Okay, so, but he's saying, don't you get it in the past? You thought, but so many people missed it. This is your chance. Be like the prophets who stayed on God's side, really realizing what God was doing. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job, the one who, who all of it was allowed to be taken from him and said, I'd, I, I, and his wife said, curse God and die. He's like, what am I going to do? Where else am I going to go? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. They know God's story. But in today, I want to complain. And today, I want to break down and say, maybe he's not with me. Maybe God doesn't love me. And James is saying, God loves you. God is on your side. God is with you. Can you trust him? So he goes on again and he says, But above all, This is kind of a he begins to conclude. James is just kind of a a laundry list sometimes of stuff. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth, by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a big deal in Jesus' words too, where he said those same words James is quoting his big brother Jesus. Remember when we were kids? You'd be like, uh, if you give me this, I'll give you that. Do, Do you promise. I promise. Oh yeah, I totally promise you, you get your fingers crossed behind your back, as though like somehow the finger crossed can make my lie not a big deal, because I, I right? <laughs> do you need to say, I swear to God, to make your words true? Do you need to make an oath in, in order for, do others say, well, I don't really trust, well, no, I got my normal trustworthiness, but this is my extra trustworthy? What if we're the people who, and hear me on this, ready? Say the true words. Huh? Amen right when when the words come out of our face what's actually happening is the truth so easy to say well then why do we lie fear we lie cuz of fear we lie because we're afraid that if i if i put the truth in there that i might be rejected or i might be i might be pushed away or or that trouble might come to me and i don't want these things and so i believe that if i lie i can i can make it work but as we become those who tell the truth even when it hurts Even when it hurts, we become the type who others can say, I would trust them with my very life because I know it, because I've seen them be willing to do the right thing, even when it hurts. And so James says, just really be truth tellers. And he continues on and he says, is anyone amongst you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Brookside Church, we have uh, seven elders. We had seven right now, six I think right now. Kevin left. I have a, like a place for him in my heart. When we set the table, we leave a place for Kevin. But uh, if you're watching, bro, I miss you. Okay, um, I have this secret belief that Kevin sneaks back and watches our sermons because he's not busy enough with his own job, right? Okay, I miss him. For those of you who don't know, Kevin was the pastor of our church until about a year or so ago. Okay, and the prayer, but he says to the elders, those of us who, who have been called to Elder God's church, and, and it says what we would do. Is, is let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Traditionally, an oil, anointing is the symbolic uh, uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. So whether we physically anoint with oil or we symbolically in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're saying, God be with you. But what's interesting is the way he continues on, because I want to go... Um, he says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The word save and the word heal are the same one, it's so it's like Soterion, so it has its, uh, this root, the idea of being saved is also being healed by God, and so they're, they're, there's a little play on words going to ha- come up here. The one is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. See how these co- two come together? Like, remember when the, the paralytic was put before Jesus, and Jesus said, <laughs> you know, you can imagine, you're a paralyzed guy, this guy's supposed to be a healer, you're like, please make me well, please make me well, please make me well, and he says, your sins are forgiven? And the Pharisees get all mad, like, how dare he? he, says he can forgive sins. But I've always wondered, what was it like to be the guy? I, I'm paralyzed, and you want to forgive my sins? Okay, thanks, thanks. Paralyzed part, please, right? And in the same way, James wraps these ideas together, that the, that the God who wants to heal your body also wants to heal your soul. And, and I, don't, I don't know the fullness of how these things work. I know that I've prayed for people, and and I know that people have gotten well, and people haven't gotten well, and I don't fully understand everything there is to know about prayer, but I know that God wants us to ask, and I know that God wants us to be his children. But notice where he goes with this, because if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. He wants the soul to be set right with God, and that we do know. And he continues, because watch where he goes. Next slide. He says, my brothers, if anyone amongst you wanders from the truth—oh, go back. I apologize. I must have missed—yeah, I apologize. I apologize. Therefore, yeah, I apologize, that was it. Thank you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You see how these two get combined together? And I want to talk about confession for just a moment. Uh, There's been this traditional group of things that you might do to be the sort who practices. Remember, the football player practiced all week on Friday night, and the pastor friend practiced with his soul all week so that he's not yelling at the guy who's yelling at about his kid and all those sorts of things. And who are you practicing to be? And the Christians for centuries, and, and these came from the Jews even before this, had practices for how you cause your soul to be the sort that works right. And we've talked about fasting, and we've talked about prayer, and we've talked about reading the Bible, and even coming and gathering once a week. These practices, how they help our soul become the sort that handles life well. But one of the ones that's forgotten, and there's a real reason for it, is that we confess our sins to one another. Uh, This is a little bit exaggerative, but the Roman Catholic backdrop, of course, is this was so helpful to people that they institutionalized it. So, you know, you can go, and there's a guy behind a screen, and, you, you know, forgive me, and I've sinned and all that sort of stuff, right? But then, of course, it became the church is the one who is forgiving your sins, and then it got a little bit more difficult, and most of the Protestant world has sort of pushed this bit away. Like, okay, I don't, we don't, you don't have to come to me and confess your sins in order to be well. You confess them to, to God, right? So James is not saying that if you want your sins forgiven, you have to talk to me because that would make me feel really odd because the Bible is really clear when it says there is one mediator between God and humanity, and that is Jesus. That's it. But I want you to hear this. Confessing your sins doesn't make your sins get forgiven. God does that. Confessing your sins makes you well. Confessing your sins is a practice of the soul that when we bring the dark places out into the light and say to someone who we love and care about, who we trust their grace to say, this is what's in my life and I failed and I'm broken, I don't want to handle it. But when we keep it in the dark, what happens is it grows and grows. I'm just going to, I'm going to, and what we tell ourselves we're going to fix it. I'll just keep it in the dark. I'll fix it eventually. <laughs> It'll work out. But what's in the dark that is evil grows, but what is in the light grows well-being you want to conquer your sins, there's no way to do it that I've seen where we don't say to one another, hey, this is what's going on. You could come talk to me and I'll help you or to those you love, to the people of grace, but to somebody who you trust will help you then walk in the way. So he says the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, as we pray for one another, I hear that and I want to pray, as we pray for one another, that's the kind of healing that can actually happen. Confession and praying for one another. He goes on to talk about my man Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And he's like, you guys all think Elijah's amazing, right? Fire, falling from heaven. The guy. Just a man. James is saying that you have the ability As you practice with your Father and learn to abide with him, Jesus said, "Whatever as we abide with him, we bear much fruit in whatever we ask. It's the abiding. One of the reasons our prayers fall so flat is because we have so not participated in his actual presence with us. This is why practices like solitude become so important. They give us a chance. and, And when I hear solitude and silence, by the way, not solitude, put more music on and, and more noise in and more uh, podcasts and, and more TED Talks, which is sort of like church for the non-Christians, I don't know. But, uh, for the, but rather, silence. What's going on in that rumbling soul of yours? Can you push time aside so that you can actually hear what's going on so that the Lord who wants to abide with you can actually be with you and participate with you even in your prayer? And then finally he just says this, is the last line of the book, my brothers, if anyone amongst you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This doesn't say go grab people and shame them. It doesn't say go grab people and, and yell at them and convict them. It actually says how do we bring back people? We love them. We care for them. We bring, and and we can follow Jesus' command where he says, instead of judging one another, you know, being like people who have a beam in your own eye and trying to pull a splinter out of someone else's eyes, and instead of trying to force our pearls on people who don't want them, instead, why don't we pray for them and love them even as we'd want to be loved? Well, let's sum up. There's been a kind of a laundry list of things here, and and all by themselves, any one of them is incredible to think. Little lines like, whoever knows the good they ought to do it and doesn't do it sins. Well, I knew I was supposed to do good. Well, it, it's not on the sin list, so I'm probably fine. No, if we're not doing good that we know we ought to do, then we're not the ones fixing the world, then we're the ones breaking it. So, the way of wisdom, just piling up from James, wait patiently like a farmer. Even as we go through broken places, even as we go through hard places, can you learn to trust? Can you learn to trust? You put those seeds in the ground, it can take a long time for them to bear real fruit. Don't crumble. I love that word, grumbling. It sounds exactly like what it is, grumble. Okay, don't allow your heart to think that cynicism and complaining and grumbling can be the thing that makes the reign of righteousness come. It just breaks you and them. All right, the servants of God saw a bigger picture. He, he pulled back to the prophets and saw there's something bigger going on. The kingdom of God is at hand. And even as we celebrate Christmas, those who got to see the coming of the Savior and those who got to see him grow up and, and saw him crucified and resurrected and ascend on the clouds and we're told he's coming back in the same way, we are those who wait. There is a coming kingdom. And when we look at our world and all of its brokenness and all of its hurt and all of its isms and all of the things that go wrong with it and we look and say, can't we fix it? Surely we can govern correctly, or surely we can educate correctly, or surely we can, we can fix it, but we don't. But the Christians are the tribe of people who would say the king is coming to set things to right, and we are the emissaries of heaven, the colony of heaven, who's trying to bring life even into this death world. And that's what the servants of God saw. Tell the actual truth. Do it. Say true words. Look at the words you've been saying. Have you been hedging? Have you been hemming? Have you been sort of saying the truth? Have you been looking to avoid reality? Because it hurts. Are you willing to walk back through reality so that you can be well? And then finally, ask for prayer. I think I have one more. Ask for prayer. Really? We want to pray for one another and confess your sins to one another. I mean it. This is going to be humiliating. If you have a sin who you've been hiding, and you've been keeping it in the dark, and you don't want anyone to see it, and you think, oh, maybe it'll finally go away, and you just keep talking to God about it, as we bring them to one another, here's a couple things that happen. Number one, the others in the room are like, whew, I thought they were perfect, and I was the one who had to be the Christian fraud. When we don't confess our sin to each other, we all start faking it, pretending we're all awesome. But as we be real and say, this is really it, and I want to grow, and we pray for one another, we actually bring healing to one another as the light brings well-being. It's just kind of a laundry list today, but we're, that's how James closed out his book, and so we walked with him all the way to the end, this way of wisdom. What is your way? Man, why don't you guys come up. What is your way? As you think about life, as you think about the rules that you put into your life to try to make it well, is success or, or, or power or prestige or, or, or greed or having enough having enough, believing when I finally have enough provision? Have you been trying retail therapy as your way to try to get well-being? Has, has your life of pleasure, has your life of, of self-serving, as, uh, of living sensually through your flesh, is that how you've been trying to get well-being? Have you been thinking of self-care as a consumerist activity that you do to fix how you've been uh, breaking your soul all along? In other words, is soul care a way of life for you? Or is it more just a sort of a, I blister my soul and now I've got to rub aloe on it and so I do my little self-care here once a week. Does the kingdom way work or not is really the question at hand. And James is very forceful in how he makes it look. Because he sees a world that's being destroyed. Even in his day, it was falling apart. Maybe ours isn't. Maybe we're fine except for one bit. How's your soul? our world is profoundly concerned that the church has an agenda for them our world is profoundly concerned that the church is going to pull a power play and, and, and enforce some sort of uh, theocracy upon them and if we've given that impression i think that there's, there's reasons on the, on the popular level they would think that but we most certainly do have an agenda it's the people of the King whose agenda is that we're going to suffer crosses, that we're going to, we're going to love no matter what, that when, when evil comes to us, that we are going to be the sort who have, who have learned, who've learned the kind of soul strength to handle it all, that we're never shaken by it, never torn by it. We become the sort who practice and accounted all joy so that when the world sees it, that they will say something's there we do want the whole world to worship our Jesus but never because we pulled a power play (laughs) but rather because we pulled a cross play because we stood and loved and that we gave life and that we were the sort who when the cheek was slapped we didn't say oh I guess I have to turn the other cheek we're the kind who when our cheek was slapped we say I have life from my God do not understand I got another one if you need it That's what James is begging us to be because he knows that those people will take over the world no cheating no power plays no no by the point of the gun but rather by the strength of a cross resurrection life is how God intended for us to take over the world and I want to invite you to be a part of it as we move into Christmas as we begin to celebrate it it is the kingdom come the humbled God wants to invite us to be the humbled people who can be raised up. That's the plan. Merry Christmas to all. Over the next couple weeks, it's going to be exciting. Uh, Bo is next week. I think I have that right. And then Amy, and then and then we'll move toward Christmas, and I'll preach, and then we'll have Christmas Eve together on 5, 530 on Christmas Eve. We'll be here. I had some uh, question marks about that, by the way. Why do we not do that together with the other churches anymore? Well, first, because they asked us not. And then they gave their reasons. They're like, well, it's just the most invitational day of the year. If Good Friday, because we all get together on Good Friday, and we got all the churches here, and this room's packed to the back and everything. It's super fun. But on Christmas Eve, we want to be able to invite people. We want to be able to say, come to our... And it's odd to invite somebody and then to show up at someone else's church. And so they asked, hey, we want to be more in-house for Christmas Eve. And I I was really moved by that, and I I agree. So the same way, we're in-house on Christmas Eve Bring anybody, anybody who wants to sacredly celebrate Christmas. We're going to have a really great evening. It's not going to be a half hour sermon. Uh, We'll be together from 530 to probably just shy of 630. And we can't wait to be there with you. Other than that, just a couple quick announcements. We've got, uh, all right, so we're a congregational church. So once a year, we vote on our budget. Um, You have to be a member of our church to vote. We don't use membership for very much. It's a weird way to think, uh, are you a member here? If not, then I will not consider you family. If you're one of us, you're one of us. We, we, all of our spiritual things work on servanthood and loving. We don't use membership to, di- to divide people. But a voting is actually a legal official function. And so because of that, you have to be a member. And there, that's why once a year, we'll, well, we have our membership class coming next Sunday. Please sign up in the back for it just so we know who's going to be here. It's our membership class, and that gives you the right to vote. It's not just on a budget, by the way, we're also voting on eldership this year. So um, please, uh, if you want to be somebody who has a say in our church, be a part of those things. We have, uh, I've, I have a, what is the date for the cookie, the cookie thing? Um, cookie exchange, December 11th at Katie Thompson's house. It's a great opportunity also to bring people to be a part of the people who wanna love them. And then, uh, I mean, honestly, share cookies. It's gonna be great. And then finally, far off, but this uh, Valentine's Day weekend, February 14th to 15th, we're going to have our one another retreat. It's for all adults, by the way. We thought, you know, do we do another marriage retreat? But half our church is young people, single people, and we got tired of treating people, single people like secondhand citizens. So what we're going to do is we're going to pair you off and pretend you're married. No, it's just a joke. No, we won't do that. <laughs> It's hilarious. Okay, not funny. You all laughed. Okay, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to really examine how love works together, and then we'll have breakout sessions for how do I love family, how do I love one another, how do I love in marriage, all those sorts of things. It's going to be really exciting, and we really want you to be a part of it. Have a really Merry Christmas time, and we'll see you next week.